Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in today for our conversation about health literacy and the role it plays in health equity. My name is Haruka Margaret Braun, and I am an undergraduate at Harvard University. Today, we have two esteemed guests who have been working in the public health space for their entire careers. As we all probably know, the COVID-19 pandemic has completely upended life as we know it. Every day, we seem to reach new records of cases, hospitalizations, and lives lost. On top of this, health disparities seen in communities across the United States have brought to life the conversation about the role racism has in health disparities, a conversation that has too often been buried in our work. Today, we discuss this and how health literacy and community engagement can help us get a little bit closer to achieving health equity. We are first joined by Dr. April Joy Damien, who currently serves as the Associate Director of the Weizmann Institute, the first community-based research center established by a federally qualified health center dedicated to research in primary care for the underserved. Dr. Damien, thank you for joining us today. Let's start off with setting a broader framework. If you could, please speak to some of the health disparities that have worsened during the COVID-19 pandemic and how you would define health literacy. Yeah, no, th those are great questions. Um, and first, thank you again, Haruka, for the opportunity to talk about these issues, which you know I say, share with my colleagues. We've been working at um, for quite some time now, and the pandemic has been both challenging, but also has presented an opportunity to bring light to these issues and know that they've been, um, particularly in Black, Indigenous, people of color, um, knowing that there's those disparities that have existed pre-COVID have been exacerbated and brought to light because of the current public health emergency. And so the CDC actually, um, they came up with the three A's approach, accurate, accessible, and actionable, because they realize how prevalent low health literacy is, and it disproportionately impacts people of color. So I think it's 77 million Americans, HHS, so Department of Health and Human Services reported this that 77 million Americans struggle with health-related reading tasks and 65% identify as people of color. So just how there's a health disparity associated with this. So the CDC, and this is what I would endorse or subscribe to is very simple. It's accurate, accessible, actionable. That's how they define health literacy. This CDC framework that Dr. Damien is referring to is a great foundation to ensuring any work that is related to health literacy is actually successful. First, accurate means not watering down information, but making it easy to understand. This includes word choice in the process of translating information into the various languages used in a community. Second, accessible means distributing information through channels and platforms where people can easily get to it. This can mean anything from posters on public transit systems, billboards, pamphlets, social media campaigns, and through broader communication channels like schools and hospitals. And finally, Actionable means that people are able to take in these health recommendations and understand how to move forward with that new information. So Dr. Damien, how would you say that the COVID-19 pandemic specifically has impacted the urgency of health literacy work in the U.S.? Pointing to, I keep harping on the issue of health equity and the disparities and of knowing that um, the same people who are disproportionately impacted by COVID-19, both um, contracting COVID-19, whether it be because of occupations or lack of access to information, um, are, you know, and also disproportionately dying of COVID-19, um, are also the same people who 
have you know issues of health literacy pertaining to other public health challenges like chronic diseases, like adverse childhood experiences, you know, name any other public health or health issue in general, and you can, you know, be able to say that, okay, the same people, you know, who are disproportionately impacted by COVID-19 and not having access to accurate, timely information are also disproportionately impacted by other health challenges. So I think, and because those other health challenges contribute to having increased risk um, for COVID-19. I think, you know, having all those, you know, connecting the dots and realizing that you, we cannot address these different um, public health issues and even emergencies in this case without, you know, equipping um, the populations we're serving with the right information and in a way that they can digest it and um, bring it to action. Absolutely. And I'm also curious to hear your thoughts on this idea about, you know, information distribution. The pandemic has forced a significant amount of people into their homes or at least into a smaller bubble. And pre-COVID, public health groups distributed health-related information through schools or on public transit. And now that exposure to information might be a lot lower to a lot of folks. I personally have seen a lot of this digital push towards information using social media, emails, apps, but there's also a large concern over access to that technology in the first place, as well as this barrier of digital literacy for a lot of communities. You know, I'm just wondering what are creative strategies that cities or public health groups have taken to distribute health-related information during this pandemic? I think more generally what we're seeing that, you know, when it comes to communications, that one size doesn't fit all. Mm -hmm. um, so there's not one way for best commuting, communicating information, right? So keeping in mind the target audience is really key. And as you said, you know, this we're in an era where there's a range of outlets um, where health professionals, public health practitioners, we can convey important um, messages so that, you know, beyond... Um, what we had talked about New York subways as an example, that there's um, news, social media tools, television, um, radio. I mean, I know older people who still listen to the radio, right, in the right. forms of interviews and call-in shows. Um, more and more people have cell phones and there's, you know, the use of downloadable apps, um, streaming media, so Facebook Live, YouTube, video conferencing, like what you and I are doing right now, and there's all kinds of other internet-based options. Um, so those, I would say, don't necessarily replace, but can supplement the traditional approaches, because there are still people out there who might be driving and will encounter that billboard, that poster. You give them a brochure, that it'll still get to them. So I think it's more a matter of expanding the number of communication um, strategies that we have. I also think that there's a, the importance of community-based organizations and how do we engage them as trusted intermediaries because um, one, they have that trust that they've built with communities. They know how to best access them and drive or translate the information in a way that the communities will understand it. And they themselves might have questions um, because they, they can either pass on or disseminate accurate or inaccurate information. And we would hope that it's the accurate. Um, I would note that at UCSF, because you can imagine that health-related social needs such as food insecurity, housing instability, these challenges have increased um, 
during the pandemic, um, they actually had student volunteers conduct outreaches to individuals in food distribution lines. And they would disseminate health information, answer questions, provide resources for testing, um, address misinformation and um, immigration fears, because I know that's a big issue when it comes to contact tracing and then providing masks to community members. So that's like an actual community outreach that's been done out of UCSF. Lastly, I asked Dr. Damien her thoughts on building infrastructure related to health literacy moving forward. But it's really, you know, how do we put pressure on policymakers um, to not just think about, you know, one-time funding in terms of like the CARES Act, um, but to create a sustainable infrastructure to make sure that communities, youth, families have access to timely information. And I say this as an epidemiologist by training, that I think there's also responsibility on us as um public health researchers and as clinicians to really keep in mind the community when we're coming up with interventions, um, tools, and strategies, that it's not just a matter of us creating it on our own, but as in um, community-based participatory research, really having communities part of the process Mm -hmm. and having a seat at the table when we're coming up with these different communication strategies or public health interventions. Wow. Dr. Dean, I knew I would be a fan of you before our meeting, but now I just, it's just, I essentially want to do what you do. Right. And I think I, it means so much to have leaders in this field who really push that communities should be coming first. Dr. Damien emphasized the importance of clear communication and community engagement when establishing health literacy programs. Next, I had the opportunity to hear directly from Dr. Dave Choksi, the commissioner of the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. Commissioner Choksi was appointed by New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio in August of this year, which means he stepped into his role at a difficult time in the pandemic. Commissioner, thank you for joining me today. As we know, New York City was hit especially hard by the virus early in the pandemic. Further, communities of color, low-income communities, immigrant communities, and the homeless population experienced high rates of virus transmission. If you could, please speak to some of these health disparities and what it's been like to step into your role during this time. Um, what we're seeing with respect to, um, to health disparities, really health inequities, um, you know, particularly racial inequities, is what has always existed uh, you know, in our country and in our city, but which has come to the fore and become visible in a way that is Um, that is unique uh, and that is urgent. Absolutely. And I know prior to your role as a New York City Health Commissioner, you've done some work in the realm of health literacy and health equity. What role do you see health literacy playing in establishing health equity, specifically in New York City? Um, It's something that I think about a lot. And I'm so glad, you know, that you're pursuing this inquiry because it is um, you know, it's, it's directly connected to how we should think about addressing uh, inequities. <laughs> um, I will say, you know, I'm a primary care doctor. Uh, mm-hmm. I've taken care of patients for, for many years. And so a lot of how I think about this really, um, really goes back to, to that, you know, to being in an exam room with a patient. And it's the same process of, um, you know, the first time I make a diagnosis of high blood pressure and I explain what that means and 
you know, I talk about the implications of it with my patient and I walk them through what our treatment plan will be. Um, and then I see how it all lands, you know, how is someone taking mm -hmm. in the information? How do they interpret in the context of their own experience and their family's experience? Um, so you start by listening, you know, understanding what is the context for how information will land in a community. Um, you know, and you, you, uh, in the same way that you have to understand what a patient's family history is, you have to understand what the community's history is, particularly about, you know, how they do trust or not trust government, health authorities, doctors, you know, et cetera. Um, and so it's about creating a more effective uh, feedback loop with communities in the same way um, that I do for, for patients. Mm -hmm. Right. And the theme of trust seems to be a crucial factor when you're working with communities, right? Unfortunately, there have been instances historically where communities of color have been exploited for health research or even completely ignored when rolling out health programs. So I think there's still a great deal of work that has to be done and conversations that still have to be had in the healing process and in the process to rebuild that community trust in a just and equitable way. And, you know, I'm curious in understanding the role that health literacy has in playing that. So what are health literacy initiatives that New York City is currently pursuing and some of the values that you all hold when you're rolling out those programs? Yeah, you know, there are things that we do that may, may not be sort of categorized as health literacy mm -hmm. initiatives, but but given that framework um, that I laid out, they are health literacy initiatives. And, you know, again, the starting point is, is listening to people. So we do a number of, of different things. You know, I would kind of divide them up into the categories of, um, of community conversations and dialogue. So, mm -hmm. you know, um, one of the things that, uh, that we do, uh, that we've done, particularly during the um, COVID-19 pandemic, is understand how uh, how people's mental health uh, is being affected over the last few months. And we've done that very deliberately in a community-oriented way, opening up spaces, often virtually, uh, you know, given that it's difficult to meet right now, but opening up spaces to, um, to have conversations about what the mental health challenges, stress, trauma, uh, substance use issues, what, you know, what that experience is like right now. So there's that realm of you know, community conversations. And then we do a lot of scientific work that I think is also um, you know, in this uh, realm as well, particularly um, surveys, you know, mm -hmm. understanding, okay, what are people's attitudes about you know, the flu vaccine or COVID vaccination? Um, you know, when we uh, issue our guidance around masks and social distancing, you know, how is that actually being interpreted uh, by communities? Um, so we do sort of both rapid surveys as well as our more longitudinal surveys to understand um, how people think about risk factors for illness uh, and health. Um, and then, you know, other things that we do uh, are sort of rooted in that, but then it's more about, okay, how does that, getting back to the feedback loop, you know, um, inform how we then engage with those mm -hmm. communities. Uh, and so, you know, we have a, a robust uh, communications apparatus um, that is constantly thinking about making sure that the information that we put out is at um, varying levels of health literacy, um, you know, because of the cultural and ethnic diversity of New York City. 
Uh, we have to think about uh, the languages that we're mm -hmm. issuing, uh, you know, all of our information in. So most of our important documentation is in the 11 most commonly spoken languages in New York City, and some of it is even in an even broader set mm -hmm. of languages. And always, you know, focusing on clear, simple messaging. Too often, we take the sort of um, the pointy-headed, you know, scientist's view right. of things, and we want to convey all of the nuance, you know, all of the evidence. Um, but we always have to strike a balance between that scientific accuracy and the simplicity of message. And I'll be honest, it's been very difficult to find mm -hmm. the right balance for that sometimes because <clears throat> there's a lot of uncertainty with respect to the pandemic and how it's evolving. And so that pushes you more to the, let's be scientifically accurate. Let's make sure we qualify all of our statements in the right way. But, um, but we always have to have that tug back to simplicity so that the messages are actually interpreted in the right way. Right, right. And I can't even imagine trying to balance the line between making language simple and keeping up with all of these new scientific findings. You know, it seems like a lot of the headlines from non-peer-reviewed research is pushed forward in the media and on social platforms, and it's challenging to bring about reliable accurate and timely information to your city amongst so much uncertainty. I want to shift to this conversation about the importance of community engagement. Being able to ensure that the community has a seat at the decision-making table and has space to discuss worries and concerns is really important during a public health crisis. But all of this is only possible when you have community trust. How does New York City work with community leaders or community organizations to ensure that the community is being prioritized? Yeah, it's, uh, it's something that we have to continually refine and iterate on. Um, I'm very proud of our approach to this, mm -hmm. uh, but it is something where you can never rest on your laurels because there's always more to be done, um, particularly in a city as large as New York. Uh, but, you know, there are some principles that we use. The first is, um, is listening with humility, you know, never uh, approaching any issue or any dialogue from the perspective of we are the experts, we have the knowledge, we are here to impart it on to others. No, it is, you know, co-production, co-development, um, you know, a, a, a shared understanding, because there are things that we just don't know about how, um, you know, whether it's COVID-19 or another health issue, how they are experienced in communities. So the first principle is uh, humility. The second is trust, you know, and mm -hmm. always trying to maximize trust. I believe in a definition of trust that is the union of competence, um, transparency, and motive. And so you have to, um, you have to try to solve along all three of those dimensions. I'll say this is something that actually is easier to do as a, a doctor taking care of an individual patient and much harder to do in the community. A patient can look at my face and look into my eyes and you know, by the second or third interaction with them, they will know that I care. It's actually much harder to engender that trust at the community level. Um, because you just don't have those same, you know, human moments to be able to, um, to convince someone of what your motives are, 
you know, to uh, demonstrate that you do wish to be transparent um, and also to demonstrate your competence. So humility, trust, um, and then, you know, some of this is just purely operational and logistical. It's making sure that we've set up, you know, the right uh, mechanisms to gather community feedback, whether it's a community advisory board for how we're engaging in testing and contact tracing, um, you know, which we have done to taking that idea of trust, bringing it to our COVID-19 vaccination campaign and, you know, using the frame, trust is a key ingredient of turning a vaccine into a vaccination. Mm -hmm. You know, how do we actually make that real at a micro level, you know, for, um, you know, the, the Black Caribbean community in Brooklyn or, you know, the, um, the Taiwanese American community in Queens uh, and really, you know, figuring out the right trusted messengers who can mm -hmm. speak to that um, diversity of communities, um, but do it in a way that we can help to organize and coordinate and make sure that they have the most up-to-date and accurate messages as well. As of December 19th, 2020, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration has approved two COVID-19 vaccines, one developed by Pfizer and one by Moderna. States have begun the rollout of these vaccines to healthcare workers and those in high-risk categories, although the specifics have deferred from state to state. As the vaccine distribution begins to a slow start, the U.S. is also experiencing the worst wave of COVID-19 cases, hospitalizations, and deaths yet, largely attributed to holiday travel and small gatherings. And the last question I'll ask has to do with the COVID-19 vaccine. So anti-vaccine rhetoric has been on the rise again recently, and I imagine many folks will be hesitant to take the vaccine when it first comes out. You know, on top of this, the rollout of the vaccine, I'm sure will come as a logistical challenge to cities across the U.S., I would love to hear more about the COVID-19 vaccine campaign in New York City and how you all are centering equity and health literacy in that process. Mm -hmm. um, yes, this is something that, uh, you know, I think about constantly. It's one of the things that keeps me up at night, certainly, you know, making sure that we um, we're thinking through this uh, along all of the different facets that we have to. Um, this is, uh, you know, a historic vaccination campaign. Um, we haven't done something at this scale since uh, the smallpox vaccination campaign of 1947 in New York City, um, and likely it will exceed even that. So, you know, it starts by framing it in the right way and saying this is um, this is a once in a lifetime, you know, once in a century type of endeavor. From that, you have to make sure you get the fundamentals right. Um, our understanding of science and the evidence, you know, for the vaccine. Uh, the logistics, you know, the operational pieces, how are we actually going to get it distributed? How are we going to have an IT system, you know, to track and order vaccine and get it to where it needs to be? Um, how are we going to stand up new uh, points of, of vaccination? But then the really key parts of it, um, you know, what you're asking about are to keep trust equity and community engagement, which of course are all interlinked as just as important facets of our vaccine planning as the science and the operations. Um, and so we've done that from the beginning. I, you know, one of my first um, uh, moves when I became commissioner was 
to appoint a really talented colleague within the health department as my first deputy commissioner and chief equity officer. Um, he's the first chief equity officer, you know, for the New York City Health Department ever. And he's going to be the one, you know, spearheading uh, our efforts around making sure that equity is a central underpinning of our vaccine plan. We have to get to the nitty gritty. And that's that um, we have to grapple with the historical dynamics, um, you know, the ugly history of exploitation uh, of vulnerable populations, particularly Black New Yorkers, um, but also Indigenous New Yorkers, um, the distrust of government that many of our uh, Latinx uh, fellow New Yorkers have, you know, all of these things um, that contribute to, uh, to lower, um, to, to greater vaccine hesitancy. Mm -hmm. It's also about making sure that we build into our monitoring from the beginning, uh, some accountability for how we're doing on this, because mm -hmm. If we roll out the vaccination plan and we get all of Manhattan, you know, vaccinated, but not the places that were hardest hit during the pandemic in Queens and the Bronx and Brooklyn, uh, we won't have done our job. So we have to set our goals in the right way. Well, Commissioner, thank you for your time today. I wish you and your team all the best as we continue pushing through what is considered some of the darkest days during this pandemic. Today, we touched on the role health literacy has in achieving health equity the importance of naming racism in our health systems, of acknowledging the historical mistreatment of communities of color, and how crucial it is to make sure that community voices are prioritized. Dr. Dabian and Commissioner Choksi have both spoken to the importance of accurate, accessible, and actionable health information to improve health literacy rates and protect communities during the COVID-19 pandemic. Within this, it is crucial to rely on trusted community health leaders and give communities the space to ask questions and provide feedback. To be able to use health literacy to achieve health equity, all of this must be done through a racial equity framework. As the U.S. begins its mass vaccination campaign for COVID-19, public health leaders and public servants must address vaccination concerns that folks may have continue to provide accessible health information, and be transparent in the process. Health literacy and the rollout of accessible health information may be a deciding factor of when this pandemic will finally come to an end. Thank you all for joining me today. My name is Haruka Margaret Braun, and this podcast was created as a project for the class Confronting COVID-19 Science, History, Policy at Harvard University, taught by Dr. Alan Brandt and Dr. Ingrid Katz. Stay safe and tell your loved ones how grateful you are for them today.